do we really understand what the wrath of God is? Do we understand what the punishment for sin, unconfessed and unforgiven, really is? I don't think we think enough about that as followers of Christ, of what it would be like if forgiveness was not offered and the reality that people that you and I love don't understand that yet and will be the recipients of God's wrath if we don't show them the love that God has for them. In your Bibles, open up to the book of Romans, chapter 1, as we continue our series through the book. Romans chapter 1, we'll start in verse 18 today. If you remember from last week, we introduced the book of Romans as a a, a theological treatise like none other. It was a letter penned by Paul to the church in Rome. Uh, He's not dealing with little issues of of personality problems or having within the church like he does when he writes to Corinthians or some of the other churches. He's simply laying out the gospel and an explanation of, of how it works and what God did and what our response should be to that. And we, we kind of took a quick little hop, skip, and a jump through four or five little places in Romans to kind of help lay that argument out. And now we're just going to go through the book systematically over the next several weeks and see why it's so important that we understand the gospel, see why it was so much uh, a priority for the Holy Spirit of God to inspire Paul to write these words. And we finished last week with those verses in Romans 1, 16 and 17 where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, to amplify his opinion of the gospel, not only was he not ashamed of it, but he felt that it was urgent, that it had to go out. It was not a matter of, if I ever get a chance to share it, then I'll do it without being ashamed. It was, no, I must go share it, and I will not be ashamed, and it is priority number one that I share this gospel. He said in Acts 20, 24, I consider my life worth nothing if I don't finish the task to which God has called me, the sharing of the gospel of God's grace. That's all he was about. And today we begin to see the urgency of that, why Paul wasn't ashamed and why Paul put such a priority on sharing the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. First notice here, the urgency of the gospel that Paul is not ashamed to preach is because the wrath of God is revealed against mankind. 
Is the wrath of God being poured out on mankind? No, that is saved for the end times. That's talked about in Revelation when the wrath of God is poured out. But here we see that the wrath of God is being revealed. What does that mean? It means that Paul has been shown, and so have the early churches that exist at this point, they have been shown what the wrath of God will look like for those that don't turn to Christ. Paul has seen it perhaps in visions. Paul has grown to understand it through his relationship with the Holy Spirit. Paul has seen it by understanding the Old Testament and how God worked back then and what God taught back then because Paul certainly knew the Old Testament inside and out far better than you and I know it or probably ever will. And Paul, because he understands what the wrath of God is and the fact that it's coming against all of mankind, he says, this is priority number one, the gospel, because the wrath of God is coming. And perhaps in his culture, much like ours, if we went out and we told the world, if we told our neighbors here in Crystal Lake, the wrath of God is coming for you, what might their response be? <laughs> if they're a fellow Christian, they might say, uh, yeah, it was coming against me, but praise God, I'm saved, and you guys could have a little you know, celebration right there on the property line and say, woohoo. But if they're not a believer in Christ, they might look at you and say, yeah, when's that going to happen? I'm loving life. To many who are living a life of sin, if you tell them that the wrath of God is coming against them, they might say, well, is my, is my beautiful house the wrath of God? Is the nice car I drive the wrath of God? Is the vacation I just took the wrath of God? If that's the wrath of God, bring it on, because I'm having fun. To the sinner, the idea of God's wrath is something perhaps foreign to them, misunderstood by them. They don't, they don't want to think about it. They don't think it's real, because if there is a God and he is so hateful of sin, then why am I living it up a sinful life and he doesn't seem to care anything about it? It makes it very difficult in a culture that's affluent like ours is here in the United States and particularly here in you know, suburban Chicagoland where there's plenty of money to go around. It can be very difficult to show people that they need God because they have everything they need. And the idea of God's wrath being poured out on sinful behavior, they may be involved in all sorts of sin. And nothing's happened bad to them. In fact, they look at us Christians who are living the good life and they look at maybe how we have less than they do and they think, well, it looks like God doesn't care so much. It's difficult then to help people understand that. It's difficult for people to understand what God's wrath really is. Wrath is God's righteous response to sin. Because God is perfect and holy and awesome and cannot be in the presence of anything that is not holy and perfect and awesome, he has a response to it. Have you ever had some sort of response to something that you didn't like? Have you ever had a walked into a place where uh, something had been sitting there too long and didn't smell so good. What was your reaction to it? I had the opportunity uh, the summer after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. It went down the next summer. So things had been sitting for about 11 months by the time I got there. And there was this house, and we told, were told we had to go clean it out. And we went in there, and went in the kitchen, and I was standing next to one of my, my teammates who was there with me, 
And this teammate, out of sheer, sheer curiosity, thought it would be a good idea to open the fridge. We had been warned, if you encounter a fridge that is still closed, because many had been laid sideways and flopped open, if you encounter a fridge that is closed, the first thing you do is get a roll of duct tape, and you tape that thing shut so when you move it, it won't fall open. They say curiosity killed the cat. In this case, curiosity made grown men vomit. That door opened up, and it was just an immediate run out of the house, it was bad. Why? Because there's a, there's a natural reaction between us and things that are abhorrent and disgusting and gross to us. God is the same way with sin. It's just his natural reaction because he is so perfect and holy and awesome. His, his reaction to sin is immediately gone, done. Now by his grace... And praise God for His grace, He doesn't just immediately deal with sin. He doesn't just immediately discount you, send you to hell. The Bible says God is patient, not wanting any to perish. And so while God has this natural and appropriate reaction to sin, He tempers that with His love and His grace. But His wrath is the outpouring of the final... And again, wrath hasn't been poured out yet, but it's being revealed what it will be. This wrath that God eventually will pour out because he can only be patient for so long. This wrath that he will eventually pour out will be complete and utter separation from him and everything that he's about. What is God? God is light and in him is no darkness at all. When you remove God from the equation, what are you left with? Sheer, utter darkness. God is life. No life without him. God is love. Without him, there will be no ability to do anything loving or, or receive anything loving from anyone. God is peace. There will be no peace. God is a friend to us. He is a friend to the sinner. There will be no friendship. God is hope, and he offers all kinds of hope to us. But without God, one is hopeless. One is helpless. God is a refuge and ever-present help to those that need it. And when God is, is no longer in the equation, there is no refuge, there is no help, there is no ever-present reality of someone good to help you. All of this will be eventually manifest in a place called hell, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and, and heat that, can, that burns but never consumes and the things that Scripture lays out about hell. That is what God's wrath ultimately will be. Every person alive today is experiencing God's presence, whether they want to admit it or not. The fact that, that people you know and that we all have friendships and we're all able to share some level of love and kindness and joy and peace, the fact that anyone gets to enjoy any of that is because God is present. And many people living here in our community are experiencing enough life and joy and peace and love and friendship that they think that, okay, well... This is great, not knowing that all that will come to a crashing, definitive end when God's wrath is poured out. God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men. And you don't have to be the worst sinners in the world to have God's wrath poured out on you. You just have to be someone who's never had your sins dealt with 
at the cross. Why don't we see God's wrath being poured out right now? Well, it's partially because he's a patient God. He's a loving God. He's kind. And he wants to give us time to repent. I heard someone explain it this way one time. This is not my, my illustration, but I can't remember who I heard it from. They said that when you're a kid growing up, you go to school, you bring home papers, and a lot of times it has like a parent signature spot, and you got to sign it, and you got to send it back to the second grade teacher or the fourth grade teacher or whatever. In the junior high, it's maybe a little less parent signatures, but you probably still sign the report card and send it back. And if there's an issue at school, you might get a phone call or an email from the teacher who says, hey, you know, little Johnny needs some help with this. We want to help him out with that. You get into high school, and there's still accountability. Teachers are still communicating with parents. There's still this, this ongoing responsibility, and you're ineligible for a sport if you don't pass a test, and different things happen, and there's this, this constant accountability that's there. But then you go to college, and while you're in in elementary school or middle school, high school, there's probably someone in your community who's paying a couple thousand dollars in their tax bill to help you go to school. It's just covered for you. But then you go to college, and now you got to foot the bill, or mom and dad are footing the bill. And so you've enrolled in this wonderful college institution, and you've gone and you've moved several hours away from home, and you're living on campus. And, you're, and you go to your first 8 o'clock in the morning class, and you're like, man, I wish I could sleep in. And you notice like half the class is missing. And you think, wait, I can cut class? This is cool. If I cut class, teachers probably aren't going to email my parents and tell me I missed. And so you start cutting some classes. And you're living the life of college, and you're thinking, this is great. We're having a party on Friday night, and you know, I can sleep in all week, and you know... I, I turn in a few things here and there, and it's all good, and it's all great. Meanwhile, mom and dad are making the monthly payments, and they don't know you're cutting class, and you're just, you're just scooting along scot-free. And then you get up close to Christmas break, and you realize that you've got some finals that are due and a whole stack of things you didn't get done, and you find out from the teacher that you missed about 70% of the whole class, and you don't really know anything about what's going on. And then you get your transcript at the end of the semester. And it's not anything you want to show to your parents. But you go home at Christmas break, and mom and dad, who've been paying the bill for school, say, let's see how you did. There will come a day of reckoning. And that's coming in, our, in, in the world. And we might think we're cutting classes and we're doing okay and there's nobody going to hold me accountable and this is great and we're partying on Friday night and I'm sleeping in and I'm doing all this, I'm doing all this stuff in life to enjoy life and maybe these Christians are all washed up thinking that God doesn't like this. There's coming a day of accountability where God will say, all right, you had your semesters in college and what do you have to show for it? Did you do what you were supposed to do? Did you get your sins dealt with? God isn't pouring out his wrath right now today on every sin and every little thing. He's giving us enough rope to hang ourselves. And praise God that he has revealed to us in his word. Praise God that he has made it alive to you by his Holy Spirit that you've been able to see that and realize that and do something about it. But there's a world out there that hasn't realized that yet. And that becomes our job then to go and share the gospel.
So what is God doing in this intermission time, this middle time where he's not pouring out his wrath, but it is being revealed? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's patiently and passionately pursuing about 5 billion people right now. He is patiently and passionately pursuing 5 billion plus people right now because he wants them to hear the message of love and redemption. He's called you to go speak it. To some of those places where missionaries haven't gotten yet or can't get to yet, he's showing up in visions to people in closed countries where they have a vision of the risen Christ and put their faith in him. God is passionately pursuing 5 billion people right now. More than 5 billion. How long will he pursue them? It's an interesting question to ask because in the next portion of Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 24, it says this, Therefore God gave them up. Speaking of those who had turned their backs on God, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of the bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up. There it is again to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. What is that all about? I don't know where God draws the line. I'm not him. And I'm not going to pretend to give you some formula to help you understand where he draws the line. I'm just going to say this. When Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell everything he had, give to the poor, and come follow me, and the guy didn't do it, the rich young ruler went away sad. And that's the end of that story. When Jesus gave his disciples instructions on how they should go from town to town, there's a time in which Jesus said, you might get to a point where you shake the dust off your feet and walk away. In the the epistles, Paul tells the church at different times, warn a person for this, warn a person for that, but there comes a point at which you need to have nothing to do with them. In 1 Corinthians, they're told specifically, for the one who wants to stay in a life of sin, expel him from the fellowship. When Ananias and Sapphira lied to God as they lied to the apostles about what they sold, Ananias had already fallen dead and been carted out, and his wife shows up later, and what what do they say? The feet who buried your husband are at the door waiting to take you as well. There are, there are cases in Scripture where it seems like a person gets to a point 
where either Jesus lets them walk away sad or Jesus gives instruction to say, shake the dust off your feet. Go on. The prodigal was let go by the father, wasn't he? There's always a welcome to repent. There's always a welcome for that prodigal to come home. Should the rich young ruler have gone home and thought about it, he could have repented and come back to Christ. Any one of these would have had the opportunity to repent. But there's a point at which it seems that God says, I'm done chasing. If you want to be followers of your lust, of your passions, of your dishonor, those things mentioned in Romans chapter 1, if you want to pursue those things, I will try to get your attention, but at some point it says God gives them up to their passions. They can always repent and come back. But the opportunity to do so becomes more and more difficult because the volume of idolatry and pride, the volume of selfishness and lust and passion, a clouded and corrupted mind is not able to hear God calling. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And if you've gotten your mind so busy with so many things, you may not hear the voice anymore. To contrast this giving up on people, why didn't God give up on a guy like Saul? Saul, who in those first days of the church was passionately pursuing Christians in order to kill them. Saul, who lusted after power, who lusted after this idea of I could be the chief of those who are leading Judaism and squashing this hogwash about Jesus rising from the dead. If I could be the guy, I will be the guy. I will stand by and supervise the stoning of a man like Stephen. Why didn't God give up on him? Because you know he didn't give up on him. Because one day on a road to Damascus, Jesus showed up in his path. God didn't give up on Saul. He showed up in his path and got his attention one more time to say, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Turn your heart to follow the one who you've been persecuting. I don't know. I don't know why God says he gives up on some and why he continues to passionately pursue others. But my guess is that many of us in this room, most of us in this room, at some point had the opportunity to turn to the one who was pursuing us. And here's a sobering thought. I'll ask it of myself. How close was I to being given up on? What if God hadn't sent one more person? What if at 15 years old, I hadn't been on that mission trip and I hadn't met a guy named Skip Bramhall who told his testimony and it cut me? How close was I? How close were you? Thank you, God. If that doesn't give you a moment to just look to heaven and say thank you, I don't know what does. He didn't give up on you. Not because of anything you had done, but because he wanted to passionately and patiently pursue you until you turned. And 
what role might you play in God passionately and patiently pursuing someone? God doesn't want to give up on them, but he needs you to step in and be the one to speak truth. I don't know when God gives up on people. Actually, I don't think he gives up on anybody. He gives them up to their passions. He doesn't give up on anybody. But I imagine some of us were close to being given over to our passions. But God was gracious and said, I'll keep going. I'm going to keep pursuing that one. Sobering thought to think that I might have been close. It's a sobering thought to think that those that we love might be close. What can I do today to give someone I love one more chance to surrender? Because God's wrath is going to be poured out eventually. And I don't want it to be on somebody that I love. Let's just peek into chapter 2 this morning. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I believe these verses speak to uh, an error in the Christian faith that has been preached for hundreds of years, corrected at times by different people and better understood at different times and in different places. This error, I've heard it referred to, you've probably heard it before, is this easy believism. Oh, I just have to, I just have to believe that Jesus died on the cross for me and I get to go to heaven? <laughs> Sign me up. I've heard that gospel preached. I think as a young child, that's the gospel I believed. Until I was wrecked at 15 by the testimony of a missionary. But it's this easy believism that says, hey, God's kind and loving, and he sent his son to die for me, and if I believe in him, I go to heaven? Great. In some ways, it is that easy. Because it's not based on anything that we do that earns us salvation. But at the same time, it's not that easy. It's not just a mental assent to, oh, I understand the kindness of God. What does it say in, in Romans chapter 2? Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Yeah, we, we know. <laughs> we know that those who've turned their backs on God, they're going to be judged for what they do. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, why would a person think that? Why would I think that I could continue to commit sins and get away with it, but the people that haven't believed in Jesus yet, they continue to commit sins, they're going to bear God's wrath? Why do I think I'm going to get away with it? 
Well, there's a presumption made in verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? <laughs> you see, this is the difference between me and that guy. You see, he doesn't know about God's kindness. So he's going to be held accountable for the things he does. But because I know how loving and kind God is, I can get away with it. Well, that was just the first century Romans, right? I'm guilty. You are too. Of at times thinking, well, if I do this, it's just a little sin, you know? And because God's kind, he's just not going to worry about it. Because I, I know, I know. What is God's wrath? It's his righteous, indignant response to sin. Big sin or little sin? To sin. God's wrath is his righteous, indignant response to sin, big or small, it doesn't matter. And because I've come to an understanding that God is kind and loving, I'm going to get away with mine. No. The reason that God hasn't punished you yet for that thing that you hang on to, that well you keep going back to for a little bit more, because it's not a big deal anyway, because I'm saved. That thing that, 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 that maybe is an old habit that doesn't want to die. That thing that just kind of, you've let the devil just kind of keep that foothold so you can kind of go back to it. That habit that you have of doing something, the reason God hasn't judged you for it yet is because he's kind. And he's saying, Gabe, would you please stop? I don't want to have to judge you for that. Would you please stop? It's like the parent that says, I don't want to spank you. Will you please stop before it gets there? I don't want to ground you. Because then I have to stay home on Friday night too. <laughs> God, God doesn't want to pour his wrath out. God doesn't want to judge us. He wants his kindness to woo us into a place of repentance. Really, God, this thing that's been kind of my little pet for a while, the reason you haven't gotten rid of me yet because of that is because you want to help me get rid of that. You want to forgive me for that. You want to give me power. You want to break that chain. You want to cast that mountain into the sea. You want to get rid of that for me, God? You don't, you don't hate me because I'm still hanging on to it? No, I don't hate you. I love you. And the reason I haven't squashed you for that yet is because I want you to repent of it. I want you, Gabe, to get to a point where you just say, no more, God. No more of that. I just want you. I just want you. Paul's urgency for preaching the gospel was his understanding that God's wrath is being stored up for those on whom it deserves to be poured out. But what if Paul, what if somehow Paul could be used by God 
to snatch one more from having to endure God's wrath? What if God could be used to get one more person out of the path of God's wrath and see their life restored, to see them changed, renewed? That's the calling we have today, church, to understand that God is passionately and patiently pursuing over five billion people in this world right now. And he may have somewhere between one billion and two billion people who've already called on his name who should understand the urgency of getting the gospel to the rest of them. But many of them don't. So would God use us to play a big role in reaching some more of those people? And perhaps the best motivation that I can have to do that is to understand how close I was, perhaps, to being given up to my own passions. But God was faithful and brought someone into my life so that I would be changed by the gospel. God, I thank you this morning for these sobering words in the beginning of the book of Romans that help me understand how much you love people. Yes, there is a righteous reaction to sin that will involve your wrath being poured out, but you are not pouring it out just yet because you are longing and wooing and, and, and drawing people to yourself. And what you've asked us to do, God, is to lift you up, to proclaim your excellencies, to talk about all that you've done for us. And in lifting you up, Lord Jesus, you can draw all men to yourself. So God, give us a sober gratefulness for what you've done for us as individuals. And may that drive us to join the masses who must go out to reach those who don't yet know the truth that will set them free. So God, I thank you for this time this morning, for what you've stirred in my heart, and for what I believe you're going to stir in many people's hearts.